from the Times of North Ossiniano and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline, the podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk, and this week Byline examines how immigration has shaped the region. We'll talk with a professor keeping a finger on the pulse of today's political environment. It really speaks to who we are as a society and who we want to be as a society during, during these times. As well as a woman helping others assimilate into our country's culture. It is amazing to me because I don't walk around and think I'm in a neighborhood with 72 different countries, but they, they are here. What you're hearing is another busy day at Taquera Los Comades, a Mexican restaurant in East Chicago, a city where we at Byline tend to often find ourselves. This time, though, we're not here for the purposes of the leg crisis. A little over a month ago, on Thursday, February 16th, the restaurant abruptly closed for a day. That might seem a little odd to happen in the middle of the work week, but there was a purpose. All around the nation, several institutions or part of their workforces didn't show up that day. The reason being because it was called a day without immigrants, a protest to show the importance of immigrants' presence and contribution to our everyday activities. It, it pop up on the, on the social media, and that's how we find out. Thanks to Facebook and Instagram, like me, there's millions of people that come here to work hard and, and, and to prosper and to become better persons, and they end up helping the community as well. There's major companies already that they're run by Latinos, you know. That's Christian Ruiz, the co-owner of Taquiero Los Comales. He and his father, Moises, made the decision for the restaurant to participate in the protest. And the Facebook and, 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 and Google, uh, they left reviews and saying, thank you very much for supporting our people. Uh, and and it says that, that we're with the community and all this stuff. And when I met Christian, he disclosed that he had entered the United States illegally many years ago from San Jose de Gracia in Mexico. Now he's a U.S. citizen. His relatives spread far and wide from Milwaukee to Indianapolis as several members own and operate the different Taquiera Los Comales locations in that stretch. He estimates if he had to bring them all together, there'd be at least 50 separate families. Christian and his father felt it was important to make a statement by participating in the Day Without Immigrants protest. People have nice jobs, they have 9 to 5 jobs, and they have time for the families and stuff, but the immigrants don't have 9 to 5 jobs. They don't have a, a schedule. And that's how the backbone of this country is built on. That's why it's so powerful and so rich, because it's, it's built on that workforce. They need to understand that. It's like they, they say, well, you should go back to Mexico because that's where you came from. I was like, yeah, they came from there, but they're not from there anymore. They're so used to the American life and, and the laws, and they're uh, they're avoiding the, the laws, otherwise they would be in jail, you know? You know, so that that's the, the, the force that drives this, at least in my end, you know? So what does mentioning one restaurant's participation in a protest have to do with today's episode topic? Well, that's what we're about to get into. 
Usually around this time in a typical byline episode, we introduce a reporter that's been working on a larger story that we've decided to draw attention to and go in depth on. Today, we're doing something a little different. Given recent events, we at Byline wanted to address something important that's been a part of the national conversation as of late. That topic being immigration. Rather than draw from a single reporter, we'll pick from several pieces and writers related to this umbrella topic. If you recall the recent election cycle, immigration was a heated subject that came up. While President Trump was campaigning, he made remarks such as these. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. And this, too. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Since being elected, he's remained committed to a plan of bolstering U.S. border security with a new wall in the South and has tried implementing two executive orders that placed a temporary travel ban on those coming into the U.S. from Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. The second travel ban took Iraq away from that list. Both attempts were halted by federal judges and faced resistance from lawmakers and protesters. One of the Times' writers, Rob Earnshaw, reported on a local family affected by the ban that also reached the attention of national news media outlets. Noor Uliette of Valparaiso has a sick mother named Isaf Jamal Adin, who has breast cancer. In January, she had gone into surgery. Noor's sister, Sahar Agonami, had tried flying from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to Chicago's O'Hare Airport. However, President Trump's travel ban had gone into effect as she was en route over the Atlantic Ocean. Upon arrival, even though she had a valid U.S. visa, she had a Syrian passport, the country where the family is originally from. She was turned away. I also do photos for the Times, and on that night I was requested to go to Valparaiso to meet this family. I'll never forget this, but after being welcomed into Noor Uliette's home and sitting in her living room, her phone rang. It was a FaceTime call, and it was Sahar calling to say she had safely arrived back in Riyadh, where it was around 4 a.m. Noor offered me the chance to ask Sahar some questions, and when I did, and I asked her about how she felt these past few days, she told me that they had been some of the worst days of her life, that she felt humiliated and like a second-class citizen. The implementation of these travel bans stems from a concern from many on terrorists making their way into the U.S., as well as attacks they've claimed responsibility for around the globe. The most recent concerns come from threats posed by the self-declared Islamic State, and is often called for short by different acronyms such as ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham, ISIL, the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, or Daesh, al-Dawla al-Islamia fi al-Iraq wa al-Sham. The worry being that those associated with the group are blending in with refugees and immigrants from Muslim-majority countries entering the U.S., 
and other developed nations in the Western Hemisphere. There's also people that feel threatened by immigrants coming from Mexico and other locations throughout Latin America. As President Trump said during his campaigning, there's worry about drug cartels with roots in those countries. But what also is a complaint is the notion that immigrants of Hispanic heritage are entering the U.S. through unconventional or illegal channels, taking jobs away from U.S. citizens, working off the books because they aren't citizens and don't apply under mandates such as minimum wage requirements, and sending their earned money back to their country of origin. In this concern for security, it's been bipartisan. Former President Barack Obama took action on border patrol and security in the southern U.S. as well. But with these recent concerns and the makeup of the political environment having shifted more Republican, I wanted to reach out to some entities to see who might provide comments supporting the travel ban measures, or more actions taken in the southern U.S. You know, speaking just to somebody who lives in Porter County and is, is active there, the ban itself is for 90 days. It's not forever, it's not permanent, it's for 90 days to recalibrate the security and vetting protocols to ensure that people that are coming here, no matter whom they are, uh, are planning on coming here to assimilate into American society and don't intend to be divisive or do us harm. This is Mike Simpson, chairman of the Porter County Republican Party and a business owner. Uh, I've never heard a soul tell me that, uh, call it a Muslim man, not a soul has ever said that. In fact, I find that somewhat offensive. Uh, I don't look at it as a ban on any particular group of people. It's picked six countries that have seemed to be some of the most troublesome in recent history. Why not take a time out for 90 days, recalibrate, and make sure you're asking all the right questions and doing your level best to ensure that the people that are coming here are going to be productive, valued citizens and uh, participants in our society. Mike also provided comments on the situation of illegal immigration. I mean, we have a process, an immigration process that has has served us well uh, over the last couple hundred years. And it makes what makes our society successful is we are a society of laws, and we follow those laws. So if you're entering illegally, you're not benefiting anyone. And in fact, from a business perspective, people that are citizens here or are here legally with an immigration card lose jobs because someone can do it off the books cheaper with cheap labor that does not put money into the system that does not benefit the system actually for that person who comes here illegally and gets a job that's off the books i feel bad for that person because they're actually being treated poorly they're actually not enjoying the benefits of society of this society and the rules that come with it including worker protection, health and welfare. So, you know, this is something that that, uh, that people say, well, gee, it doesn't hurt anything. Actually, it does. It hurts it significantly. You know, and, and again, if you're illegal, you've got no rights. You're here 
and somebody can abuse you, and who are you going to go to? Who are you going to complain to? So, you know, that's that's part of the problem. It, it's, it's you're, you're glorifying something that is actually bad for that person. The way President Trump has shaped his immigration policy was discussed at a panel that occurred at Purdue University Northwest on February 28th that Times reporter Lauren Cross went and covered. This panel featured Alfredo Estrada, an associate attorney with Burke Costanza and Carberry LLP, associate professor of political science Frank Colucci, and assistant professor of political science Yu Uyang. I sat down with Yu to talk with him about this panel. He's an immigrant himself, having come from China. He's taught in Indiana for a year, and he spent a majority of his life in Georgia. His own father came illegally by boat across the Pacific Ocean in the 1980s. You told me the area he's from in China was like northwest Indiana, where jobs and economic prosperity fluctuated, causing his father to leave and stake out a new life for the family. There were simply not many alternatives available um, if a family were to survive. So my, my, my dad made the difficult decision to, um, to leave the family where um, I believe I was just born when he left. So I actually didn't get to meet my dad until I was seven years old. My life should have turned out very differently to what to how it did, right? Um, I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunities that um, what my dad did. Um, you know, without him risking um, taking the risk that he did, I, I certainly wouldn't be in this position that I that I am in right now. As you pointed out in the panel, times of perceived danger, like where we are now has historically prompted the U.S. to put restrictions on immigration. Right, and that, you know, this past election cycle has been um, particularly toxic, and not just on um, ideological ground, but also on nativist grounds. Unfortunately, um, we have always had a difficult relationship with certain immigrant groups, especially during times of crisis, right? So um, if you look back in history on um, sort of the Chinese Exclusion Act um, um, back out on the West Coast or the various Alien and Sedition Act during World War One, um, especially in times of crisis or when the nation perceives danger um, either from, especially from foreign actors, then um, it becomes fairly easy to single out that segment of the immigrant populations that already exists in the United States, regardless of whether they actually pose a danger or not. But there's a question we'd like to pose here. In the United States, are most of us, aside from Native Americans, not the products of immigrants? Like Christian Ruiz said earlier, should we turn around and look at our roots to see where it is we came from? With that thinking, Yours truly wouldn't even be here had my great-grandmother, Caroline Konialka, not come from Poland by herself at age 14 to the U.S. After generations of immigrants have come here, do they become complacent with this land being theirs and forget where they came from? What effect do immigrants economically have on this area? Northwest Indiana's history is tied to immigration. You can read a bit on that from a Times article called Industry Defines Northwest Indiana, Then and Now by Joyce Russell. There were English and French fur traders that interacted with the Native American tribes of old. There were English, French, German, and Irish settlers in the 1800s that populated northern Lake County. 
There were Polish and Eastern European immigrants that came too and joined to become the backbone of our steel mills. And let's not forget Africans that were brought to the U.S., many of whose children migrated to northern metropolitan areas. You can drive the streets of Hammond, Whiting, East Chicago, and Gary, and you can see the street titles with European names like Seoul, Sibley, Homan, Fayette, Goslin, Hoffman, Schrag, Stiber, Fishrup, Hewish, McCook, Casiasco, Euclid, Wegg, Todd, Groselli. And you could just go on and on. That's right. We can't really say that immigrants do or do not take our jobs. We can't say that immigrants cost the government more or do not cost the um, The reality is um, immigrants actually do enter into competition with American workers, but also with existing immigrants. The immigrants that um, are often in the public's consciousness when they talk about jobs are those that, were, that will be working in low-wage um, manual labor type um, occupations. And in that sense that immigrants can come into competition, but in reality, be, um, because of the way of the migration and settlement patterns of these immigrant groups, where they tend to concentrate in certain locations where um, previous groups, um, where many of their previous ethnic groups have already um, been living, they're actually in competition with within their own group. Immigrants, especially first-generation immigrants, those that are just came here recently, do cause a, a certain number of a certain amount of demand on government resources. And much of that resources actually are devoted to education of the immigrants' children. However, by the time these immigrants become second generation, so by the time their children, their grandchildren, by the time they become second and third generation immigrants, they actually contribute a whole lot more to government's tax bases, if you will. You also brought up a few more items on what immigrant populations contribute to Indiana. Um, immigrants now uh, represent about 5% of the state population as a whole. Immigrants also pay a lot in taxes. Just among the Latino population alone, um, in 2013, they, they pay over $900 million in federal taxes, over $500 million in state and local taxes. And in fact, the illegal population actually pay over a hundred million in state and local taxes in the year 2010 I believe. If these illegal population were to make were to become legal or given legal status in the state of Indiana alone they would contribute another 140 million dollars. Use points are drawn from various sources one being the American Immigration Council and a published study called New Americans in Indiana of which they have similar studies for other states. If immigrants contribute greatly to our economic prosperity, what kind of message does it send to impede them or send them back? At least in regards to the university settings around here, including Purdue University Northwest, Indiana University Northwest, and Valparaiso University, those three systems put out letters saying they would provide resources to assist international students that could possibly be affected by the new travel ban. It really speaks to who we are, who we are as a society and 
who we want to be as a society, you know, um, in in these time, in, during during these times, do we um, do we want to be do we want to be truly a welcoming community, or do we rather to be more self-serving in that, um, you know, we we tell people that you know as long as I'm doing okay. I'm willing to allow you to be here, but as soon as something were, if something were to happen, then I'm very willing to give you up, right? We have to really decide on which, which of these two messages that we want to send people. In regards to being an open or welcoming society, there's been national efforts like the protests at airports and cities over travel bans, or commitments by mayors to provide sanctuary cities that won't comply with roundups. But there's even local efforts, not necessarily brand new, that are providing that feeling too. So past tense will be eight. Eat, eight. Drink, drank. Come, came. Go, went. This is the inside of a room at the Lake County Public Library's main branch in Merrillville. It's an ESL class, which means English as a second language. The library offers three different levels from knowing no English at all to an intermediate level, with 10-week sessions. The coordinator behind them is this person. My name is Rosella Garcia, and my job title is Literacy Coordinator, and I'm considered an assistant librarian. Rosella has been at the library for several years. She's originally from Denver, Colorado, and was a social worker for 18 years prior to coming to Indiana. She notes that the diversity, at least around Merrillville, is immense. She's kept track of the different countries students say they come from, and in total, she's counted 72. I was really excited because there is such a huge diversity of people that come here. I had no idea because um, you see them when you go to the grocery store. You know, I, I, I mean, I live in Hobart now, but I've lived in Crown Point, I lived in Hammond, I lived in Valparaiso, I've been out here 20 years. But you don't really realize until I had the classes and people would show up. It is amazing to me because I don't walk around and think I'm in a neighborhood with 72 different countries, but they they are here and they come for class. And um, I don't know, it's the best job in the world, I think. Of course, these students want to come and learn or improve their English speaking abilities. But another thing Rosella wants to make sure they know is how welcomed they are here. But the, one of the things we talk about in our classes, though, they're not just academic, you know, like I said, they're not highly academic, but they are also about community. This is your community now. How do we help you feel part of being in the United States and being in Merrillville? And um, I make it real clear that we are sitting across the table from people whose home countries are in war. I have Syrians in the same room as Afghanistan. And... Um, Bangladesh and Pakistan and you know they're in the same meeting room so I make it very clear that we are all individuals more similar than different. But I also wanted to ask her given today's political environment and context how do the students feel? I, I've had people tell me that they're scared that they're very well aware that there's that they're not welcomed and that that makes them feel um, scared that they're gonna be sent back and they're gonna be split from their kids and stuff like that. Um, but I've also seen my numbers go down. 
and see my numbers go down. And I think people are not coming forward as easily. I have people call me and they will ask me what proof they have to show. What do they have to give me to be able to learn English? We tell them their family-friendly program. This, all the services here at the library are for everybody in the community. We just need a contact number. If you don't have a phone, somebody that will get the message to you that we are closed. We need a name, and we need, um, I like, I tell them I like to know what country and languages because it excites me to know different places you're from. When you see these students, sure, it's hard for them to learn parts of English. It's not a simple language, but it really boosts their confidence. One of those students that's been in the intermediate classes is Bruna Pollard, who lives in Merrillville. I went to her home to speak with her and her husband, Adam. Did he just say trophy wife? You know how you say trophy? <laughs> trophy husband. <laughs> trophy husband. Yeah, this is cool. Bruna is originally from Brazil, where she met Adam, who's originally from Davenport, Iowa. They met in 2009, when Adam was doing a Teach English as a Foreign Language program. Adam came back to the U.S. in 2012, and Bruna was able to follow along in 2013 after going through an extensive process of completing papers and doctor's visits to finally earn a K-1 visa, otherwise known as a fiancé visa. The couple moved to Merrillville in 2015. Bruna works as an interpreter in Chicago, and Adam is a field deputy for the Lake County Assessor. I think you're very good, but it's, of course, take better day by day. I can understand everything, but uh, sometimes I, I say the sentences the wrong way, or my grammar is, I don't know, past tense. Uh, In doing the classes, Bruna went right away into intermediate classes. When she first came to the U.S., she couldn't speak at all. But her ability improved through different jobs and by reading books. The classes further improved her abilities. Although she feels her grammar could still use work, but also allowed her to express herself, being the extroverted person she says she is. Uh, I think for me, uh, I like it because um, I can make friends and I can socialize because I'm a very socialized person. I, I, I like to go out, you know, stuff like that. However, she feels she experienced prejudice while living in Davenport and even now being here in the region. Yeah, it's different, you know, because Iowa... I don't know, it's different. People over there is very uh, more, I think, conservative and more um, judge because it, nobody knows my history. Judgmental. No, judgmental. So people, of course, I have accents when I talk and I think I'm going to have it forever. I'm going to clean, I'm going to improve my English for people understand it more, but I'm going to forever my, I have accents, for sure. Mm-hmm. And people judge me. People think I come here, don't know nothing about my life, maybe because I... Oh, you have your America dream. Are you married your husband? I listen, I heard that all the time. Are you married your husband because green card? <laughs> you know, this is not your case, you know. This, I've, I've little offense about this. I think in Davenport this happened more than here. Bruna says the campaigning and election of President Trump, as well as subsequent reported racially charged incidents, worried and offended her. She's a lawful permanent U.S. resident casually known as a green card holder, and still plans to apply for U.S. citizenship. So it makes sense she doesn't want anything bad to happen to her, or her friends she's met. But Bruna and Adam also noted to me that they can agree with border security concerns, or having immigrants come into the U.S. in legal ways, 
For example, they noted their disagreement with birthright citizenship, or the right to automatically be considered a U.S. citizen, guaranteed by the Constitution's 14th Amendment, because one was born on U.S. soil or a U.S. vessel. This particular notion is one thought of to be often used by immigrants coming to the U.S. that may enter illegally, but may then have a child, who is then automatically given U.S. citizenship, and then, in slang terms, is more or less pejoratively known as an anchor baby. This is some audio of a potluck dinner at the library. At the end of each 10-week session of these ESL classes, the students and instructors have a potluck dinner with a diverse mix of dishes. If all of these people can get along here, I asked Bruna and Adam, how do we balance the points? How do we keep immigrants safe and treat them with respect, and also meet concerns of border security? I think, in terms of solutions, it's a matter of mutual understanding. There's, um, there's people from the black community up in Gary and the Hispanic community up in East Chicago who are gangsters, who should be feared by people down in South County, but unfortunately people down in South County label everybody up there like that, and they don't even want to go up there. And the people up there think of all the people in South County as hillbillies, and there's no, there's no open channel of communication between the two groups, and so the, di- the social divergence continues in a negative direction, and each side continues to think of the other as worse and worse. This is a country of immigrants. If you happen to be brown and not white, you're not a second-class immigrant. Exactly. Byline is a production of the Times of North Ostiniana. Episodes come out every two weeks and can be found at nwy.com slash podcasts. Byline is also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just type in NWI Byline in the search bar, and we should pop up. If you've got a media player and want to download our episodes or listen on the go, Byline is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We just kindly ask that you rate us and leave a review because it actually really helps. And we like to hear from you, whether that's constructive comments, feedback, or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear more about. Just drop an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. Reporting for this week's episode came from Rob Earnshaw, Lauren Cross, Joyce Russell, and myself, Kale Wilk. We'd like to thank Christian Ruiz, Yu Uyang, Rosella Garcia, and Bruna and Adam Pollard for taking time to be interviewed for this episode. Finally, a big thanks goes to Summer Moore, the Times' digital and audience engagement editor, and Byline's creator. She's the captain of this ship and helps guide our course every episode. I'm Kale Wilk. And from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time.